You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. Well, it's Christmas time, and we have a little tradition here at Vintage that I, at Christmas time, get to kind of quiz you a bit about Christmas and also tell my worst. Christmas dad jokes, and so we'll come on to that in a minute, but let's just understand where people are heading out to over Christmas. We have such a wonderful, dynamic range of people here. How many of you will be traveling out of state for Christmas? Wow, a lot of you. How many of you kind of leave this week ahead? You're starting to leave this week? Quite a few of you. Great. How many of you going um, overseas? Well, not overseas, out of the country, like Canada, Mexico? (laughs) Who's going like way overseas. Anybody going way overseas? Shout out some names of countries. London. London. Texas. <laughs> Amazing. You need a passport to get to Texas, right? Your own passport. Other countries? France, Jamaica. Wow, Christmas in Jamaica would be amazing. Can I come with you? That sounds amazing. But Christmas is a great time, right, to see family and friends and to travel. Christmas is also a great season to watch your favorite movies. I'm going to list out some movies and raise your hand if you know, yes, this Christmas I'm going to watch this movie. Ready? Elf. Yeah, amazing. I'm switching them up from last year, by the way. Home, Home Alone. You're definitely going to watch it. Okay. Holiday. I don't think that's a Christmas movie, by the way. I, do, I reject the Christmas movie theme. Die Hard, <laughs> amazing. Old, this is a goodie from an old, from the 80s child like I am, Gremlins. Anybody gonna watch Gremlins? Okay, The Santa Claus, and then It's a Wonderful Life. There you go, amazing. All right, so I normally tell my worst, uh, best Christmas dad jokes, and these are new, right? These are like contemporary ones that I give you permission to use. Okay, you can take these home. So, some of them are British because I'm British, but there we go. So, we'll start with a British one. How did King Charles sign his Christmas cards this year to his family? The artist formerly known as Prince. That's not bad. That's not terrorist brutal. Sorry, Rebecca. She's British. If we go, that's terrible. Okay. Why has Santa been banned from chimneys? His carbon footprint. Oh, controversial, controversial. (laughs) Suddenly, no politics. Okay, ready? Um, Why do WikiLeaks staff have have with their Christmas turkey an anonymous source? (laughs) Lame. Lame. I felt lame coming back right there. Okay, now, this this is really close to me right now. What's the difference between the English soccer team and Santa? Santa always delivers. <laughs> Brutal. And this is, this is one. I'm going to ask you to shout out your answers, ready? Which airline did Mary and Joseph take to Bethlehem? Virgin. Virgin. There you go. All right. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're welcome. That's all I can say. You can use those. You can take them home with you. All right. 
But Christmas, as we know, is more than bad jokes. And we're going to look at a book, a biography of Jesus this morning, very briefly, that the guy who wrote it, wrote it because of Christmas. He wrote it because of Christmas. And as we read it together, his whole point is for us to get to the anchor point, the reason for the season. And so let's open our Bibles, if you have them, or look at the screen to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. John wrote this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now before we move on, this is an opening that is kind of confusing to us, but would not have been confusing to anyone in the first century when this was written, because the word for word was a very common word at the time. The word in Greek, and we'll see it on the screen here, was logos. So John is writing, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And we sometimes think, well, what does logos mean? Is it kind of the word of God? Is it some kind of wisdom? But actually, it was a very contemporary word that the Greeks in particular used to try and understand who was this God person? Who was this God person? They used this word logos to say there's something out there, there's some mysterious creator, mysterious spirit that is, as we would say in Los Angeles today, some mother source, some great spirit. This is what the Greeks would say in the first century, the logos. And so, yes, in the beginning was the logos. And the Logos was with God, the Logos was God. We, yes, we, Paul is affirming with the Greeks at the time and with Los Angelinos, most Los, Los Angelinos, that yes, we all know there's something out there. We live in a city where atheism is not the dominant religion, but kind of confusion. We kind of know there's something there, but we can't quite grasp what that something is. We, we feel this something's presence when we walk the beach on Santa Monica Bay. We, when we're hiking in the Santa Monica Hills, when, when you, not me, are surfing, I'm told that there's this kind of connection to something other. In the first century, they called that otherness the Logos. It's the great search of humanity. What is this Logos? And John writes... This first verse, which everyone would agree with, we're all looking for something, but suddenly John takes a turn, a surprising turn. And in the next verse, he says this, he says, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Verse two, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you see, all of a sudden, he's using the personification of this logos. It's not just a force, it's not just a power, it's not just this mysterious something. Paul, I mean, John straight away is referring to some personification. He. He goes on to verse 11, he says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The word, the logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, so far, John is leading his audience who are not Christians through this incredible journey of affirming their search for something other. But he takes them by the hand and says, this otherness can become known. This otherness has come to us in a person. And then in verse 17, he says who this person is. He says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. The staggering point of John's biography of Jesus is to suggest, is to propose, is to kind of present to us that the Logos that we all know is out there is no longer confusing, is no longer mysterious, but has come and made himself known. Someone once said that you can't look at the sun with the naked eye because you look at the sun, it's too, it's too bright, it's too glorious, it will probably blind you. So you have to put on some kind of filter. And then when you put on some kind of filter, it's enough for you to see the beauty and the, the, the radiance of the sun and you can get close and see the shoots of rays and glory of the sun. And in some ways, John is saying, look, it's impossible to see God fully, but we need a lens, and God has given us a lens, the person of Jesus in human nature, that as we look at Jesus in human nature, he's the lens through which we discover who God is. That Jesus is God come to reveal himself, that we may fully know who he is. And what is even more surprising is what we then discover about this Logos about this God who we see in Jesus. Because straight away, we see something that we kind of had an inkling of, but now we see makes sense. Because straight away, we see that in God through Jesus, we see that God really is love. Now, we know all the time that God is love, but the Greeks at the time thought love was a creation of God, but not God himself. That this universal force, this being, this mono-being was all-powerful and great and awesome, but couldn't have love at the center of this being because love could only exist in relationship. So God might have created love, but he isn't love. But we all kind of think, hang on a minute. This whole universe, at the heart of it, at the heart of every Christmas movie, at the heart of every song, at the heart of every prayer, is this echo of love. And straight away we see through the lens of Jesus, we go, aha, this makes sense. Because at the heart of the Godhead, we see a relationship of love. We don't see an individual force, we don't see just a being. We see in Jesus a relationship of Father and son. In verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son, who is himself God, and is in closest possible relationship with the father, has made him known. John is saying, the first thing we see 
at the heart of the Logos is a relationship of love. That love is not something God creates, love, some, love is something that God is. Tim Keller has this great quote where he talks about the importance of the mysterious nature of God as three persons in one nature, but how vital it is because this makes sense of why love is the engine upon which the human race lives. He says this, if God is singular, then until God created other beings, there was no love, since love is something that one person has for another. This means that the singular God was power, sovereignty, and greatness from all eternity, but not love. Love then is not the essence of God, nor is it at the heart of the universe, but power is primary. However, if God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, then loving relationships in community are the great fountain at the center of reality. God really has love as his essence. Love is the purpose of God because he is essentially, eternally, an interpersonal love. And of course, this story of Christmas is love on display. In verse 12, we see that this relationship of love is not insular, but says that he came that to all who would receive him would become children of God. In other words, we get to join the relationship of God. This is what it means to follow Jesus, is to receive his invitation to join what the early Christians would say is the great eternal divine dance, the dance of father and son. At the heart of the relationship is a joyful, other-centered, other-loving relationship. And Christmas, as one person put it, is this relationship punching a hole in the ceiling of the world and coming in, stretching out an arm and inviting us to join the celebration. This is, how we, this is how we were created. This is how we were meant to live, is to live in the dance of father and son. A friend of mine called Mike went to a wedding of his best friend, and his best friend was the bridegroom of the wedding, and it was a Jewish wedding. And Mike was not part of that tradition, but went along and had just the most amazing time. And after the after the ceremony became, came the reception, and he said he was sitting at the edge of the room and, and just enjoying the festivities, and a few people were dancing, but all of a sudden the bridegroom got up and grabbed his bride, and all the other men and women joined in, and all of a sudden, everyone in the room was in this choreographed but spontaneous, other-centered dance of joy. He said the whole room was swirling around, and everyone kind of knew what they were doing, but it was laughing and giggling, and he's, he was looking at it with awe, looking at this amazing celebration, this dance of love and life and community and friendship, and he was looking at it going, oh my, this is unbelievable, this is amazing, and then all of a sudden, as he was on the outside, all of a sudden, out from this throng, this amazing group of dance and life and joy, he saw an arm kind of outstretched, arm come out of the middle, and it was the hand of his friend, the bridegroom, and his, the hand came out and said, Mike, come on, Mike, give me your hand. And Mike just kind of put out his hand, and all of a sudden he felt his friend yank him into the center of the dance, and he got caught up in the joy and the love the otherness, the laughter, the living. 
And Mike felt this is what Christmas is all about. That in Christ, in the incarnation, a hand has been outstretched from the dance of the divine. Outstretched to you and to me saying, Jim, Susan, Bill, take my hand. I want to bring you back into the family of love, the great dance of eternity. You were never meant to be alone. You were never meant to be without us. You were never meant to survive with the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. You were meant to be part of the holy trinity, the dance for eternity. That's what the incarnation is all about. God really is love, and it's an invitation of love. John goes on to say, it's not just this father and son relationship that we now see in God, but he goes on and says, we see that in God, the manifestation of his glory, he is full of grace and truth. He is full of grace and truth. In Christ, we see the truth of God. Now, truth is a very contentious word nowadays. And I get it, because truth generally is used in two different ways, and sometimes we can confuse the two. There's truth which is subjective truth. It's your truth, and maybe not my truth. Like, your truth may be you like chocolate ice cream. My truth is I hate chocolate ice cream. It's a subjective truth. And I think that's such an important concept today, that people feel that they can actually express their opinions and their truth without being put down and without being shamed. It's, no, this is me. But it's subjective truth, but it ought not to be confused with objective truth. Because we all crave objective truth. We all build our life upon objective truth, which we all crumble if it becomes subjective. We all want, for example, science to be objective. We don't want my truth when it comes to gravity. Well, that's your view, that's your truth, I have a different truth. We want math to be objective. We don't want two plus two to be whatever else we want it to be. There is objective truth. We plan our lives around objective truth. When you go to the bank and you go to the cashier and say, hey, I'd love to know how much is in my bank uh, account, we don't want to hear the words, well, my truth is. <laughs> but I don't know what your truth is. And, Sometimes it's a good thing, we want objective truth, but sometimes objective truth is uncomfortable. We don't like it, but we can't deny it. We have to accept it even if we don't like it. Every, t every morning when I wake up and go to the bathroom and hop on Mr. Weighing Scales and I look down, it's uncomfortable, it's inconvenient, but I can't say, well, that's your truth. <laughs> I have a different truth. We need objective truth, and the, the great claim, the great challenge, and sometimes it's inconvenient and actually can, is confronting, is that John is saying, in Jesus we find objective truth. In Jesus we find the truth. The truth that we long, because we long for stability, we long for coherence, we long to know, is there a God that isn't changing that isn't just a personification of my idealized self? Is there a God that is actually holding this world together, that he is consistent like science, like math? This is important, but at the same time, we go, well, that's also inconvenient because it means that he gets to say 
what is right. He gets to say what is true. I remember when I was on my journey of faith in my mid-20s, and I was struggling with this concept of Jesus' objective truth. Kind of wanted him to be subjective. Kind of wanted to go, well, that's your truth, and anyone else can have their truth. And yet I had to wrestle with the fact that Christians, John, and Jesus doesn't let us view him as subjective. And I remember going on something called the Alpha Course, which is a a series of eight evenings that we run here for people who wouldn't call themselves Christians or got major doubts to look at the evidence of Jesus. To look at, actually, I don't, don't just want to believe this without actually working out if it's true. And if it's not true, then frankly, there are easier ways to live. Particularly in LA. But if it is objectively true, then that has a bearing on all of us. Just in the sense, we can't deny science, we can't deny math, and if Jesus is in that category, then we all have to take him seriously. And I remember going into that first evening on Alpha with about six or 700 people all like me, all exploring, all a bit nervous, all very questioning, and I didn't realize how much evidence there was for Jesus. That Jesus, amongst the consensus of all scholars, atheistic, Christian, and others, is that he did exist. And then I went on to see the huge amount of evidence for what we call as the linchpin of Christianity, which is the resurrection of Jesus. I suddenly found that scientists, intellectuals, historians, people I esteemed, found the evidence for Jesus compelling and his resurrection. I'm not gonna go into that evidence now, but if you are intrigued like I was, I want to invite you too to join me on the Alpha Course that starts again mid-January, where you can go on a journey of going, well, I always thought Jesus was subjective, like, like ice cream, that's your truth, but I have a different truth. But if you're saying Jesus is objective truth, well, I've got lots of questions. And we really love questions here at Vintage. And so I'd love you to join me as we explore those questions together. But Paul doesn't say he's just, John doesn't say he's just the truth. He says he's full of grace and truth. Grace. Now grace is a very difficult word because though we can define it as undeserved gift, undeserved merit, undeserved love, it's something you get when you don't deserve it. We kind of know it intellectually but we never experience it practically. It's a currency that we never live with in our society. And so we look at something as full of grace and we go, well, I kind of know what that means, but I kind of don't because we rarely get to experience grace. We think God gives us what we deserve because that's what we're used to in life. We don't think God would ever give us what we don't deserve. We think performance is the currency of life and the, and the currency of our relationship with God, whereas Jesus says that's not the currency. Grace is the currency of your relationship with God. And we so struggle with that, most of us don't believe it. See, performance is the operating system of the human race. It's performance. We think in our relationship with God, if I impress God, if I obey him, if I do the right thing, then I'm in a good relationship with God. 
in my career, my vocation. If I perform well, I get promoted and I'm valued. In our body image, if I perform well in how I look, how I dress, then I am valued and I am loved. In relationships, I, I am in a secure marriage. I'm in a secure relationship if I keep performing and satisfying my partner. And even Christmas is principally been made all about performance. Freaks me out, but every year we sing this song, and it's quite a disturbing song. It's Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list and checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town, and here's the creepy bit. He sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Christmas is performance-based. And then, of course, we had, which has nowadays been banned, but Elf on the Shelf. Do you ever have Elf on the Shelf? We traumatized all of our children for about 10 years with this thing called Elf on the Shelf. You buy it and put it on the shelf, and the whole point of the shelf, the elf was, he would quote from the website, observe your children's behavior, and every night head back to the North Pole to report whether they've been naughty or nice. I remember my kids, whenever they saw Elf on the Shelf, kind of tiptoeing through the room, <laughs> thinking, I can't put a foot wrong or else I get no presents. I'm surprised I just didn't find one day the Elf kind of slaughtered on the floor. <laughs> the most unwelcome guest of Christmas is the spy from the North Pole. <laughs> We're just not used to grace. I remember hearing this story of a boy who approached Santa in a department store with a long list of requests. He wanted a bicycle, a PlayStation, a basketball, a drone, and a skateboard. The man, Santa, said, that's a pretty long list, little Timmy. I'll have to check in my book and see if you've been a good boy. No, no, said the boy quickly. Don't check, I'll just take the skateboard. <laughs> see, Timmy knows that we're all in trouble if our relationship with God is based on performance. It doesn't matter how good you think you are, we know we're all in trouble. We tend to push off people who we know are evil, push off and go, but I'm not like that, therefore I'm good. But we don't even think we're good in Santa's list. Let's just get real. We all know we're broken. I do. My wife knows I'm broken for sure. We're broken. Our thought patterns, our motives, our desires, our spending habits. We'd like to think we're good, but if we look at the human race, we know we're broken. And the challenge is we treat ourselves and define our relationships according to that performance-based reality, which results in all the devastation relationally in the world. And we look to God and go, well, he must view that also, and therefore what we, we run from God. We hide. We don't want to be shamed. We don't want to be guilty. Because we know we are. And yet, in the great revelation of who God is and how he views us, we see in Jesus Christ that John says he's full, not of performance-based justice. But he's full of grace. 
He's full of grace. He comes to the broken because we're broken. He comes to the hurting because we're hurting. He comes to the unloved because we're unloved in order to love. One of my favorite uh, illustrators, he wrote a book on New York Times bestseller, Charlie Mackesy, before he was famous, wrote, uh, did a little sketch of the nativity scene. It's one of my favorite sketches to show that Jesus came to the broken. If you see in this little sketch, you may not be able to, but here's a scene of the nativity. And he says, who was at the nativity? Was it those who performed really well? Was it those who deserve anything? Because even the nativity was a demonstration of I've come by grace. I'm so glad that, at least for me, that I find in Jesus a God full of grace. Because if a God was going to give me my just desserts, I would be lost. And maybe you're here today going, God could never accept me. I've done too much. Man, if it was up to performance, if I'm honest, yeah, I know I like to think I'm not the problem in the world, but really, I'm part of the problem. This is at the heart of the message of Christmas, that God has come in love, in truth, and full of grace. To love us where we're at, to bring us home as his children. I'm going to show you some images which, again, are from Charlie, not his most illustrious New York Times bestsellers. But when I first saw these, if you forget everything else about what you see today or hear today, and if you forget everything else about Christmas except these images, I pray that that will be all you need. You see, I grew up thinking that Jesus would view me if I got everything right. If I got everything right, then the Christianity is about rules, and Jesus is about rules and doing everything according to perfection. So Christianity for me was like this next slide, this picture of this mouse. My life has got to be within the rules. I've got to color perfectly. I can't go out of the lines. And if I do this, next slide, if I do this, then, then he loves me. He's going to come to the good, not the naughty. That he's got his angels on the shelf going back every night saying if I'm within the lines or not. That was what I grew up with. But I knew that I'm in trouble because in reality, I'm not like that. I'm like this next slide. This is me. Can I suggest this is you? That before God, before perfection, before holiness, before the creator of the universe, the author of love, the author of justice, the author of generosity, the author of goodness, before him, that's me. That's me. And this is the good news of the word made flesh. Because in my mess, I'm loved. In my brokenness, I'm loved. In the height of my mess, he came for me. And he came for you. I want to tell you some good news this Christmas. 
that you may be outside the dance, sitting down full of anxiety and stress and brokenness and loneliness, maybe anger, maybe you've done things to others and you're outside the dance and you may think, well, no one would ever want to include me. But at Christmas, we see the hand of Jesus, the bridegroom, stretching out to all of us. Not because you're good, not because you deserve it, but because you are loved. Let's stand together. I want you just to close your eyes for a minute, and we don't do this every week, but every now and again I feel there may be one or two people who want to accept that hand of Jesus to come in and have a relationship with him, to join the dance, the love relationship of the Father and the Son. And just Please just close your eyes. I was one of those kids in church who never closed my eyes, so don't be like me just so we can provide safety for everyone. And I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna pray in a minute for those who would like to accept the invitation from Jesus to be forgiven, to be given the life of Jesus, to join the family of God, to follow him, the truth and grace. And it's simply, we're gonna say a prayer in a minute and that prayer is you accepting the hand of Jesus as he pulls you in. He never forces you but he will outstretch his arm outstretch his hand, and your prayer is a way of going, I receive it. And just so I know, I'm not going to ask you to do anything except say that prayer silently in your heart, but just so I know, and there's always kind of outstretch your arm, and I kind of want to make it as safe as possible, but I do think that physical outstretching your hand is important. So while every eye is closed, if you want to accept that invitation from Jesus this morning, on the count of three, just so I see it and no one else, just raise your hand. One, two, three. Just raise your hand. Great. Put your hand down. That's wonderful. Now let's say all of us this prayer silently in our heart. Jesus, we thank you that you came. And you showed us a God who's full of grace, full of love. And we see in you the truth of who God is. Sorry for the things I've done. I am part of the problem in this world. I am a mess. But thank you that you love me where I'm at. You came for me in your love just exactly where I am. You went to the cross to take on all the things that I deserve you took for me on the cross that I may just be forgiven. Now please come into my life. Let me join the the dance of God. I want to be part of your family. I want to know your forgiveness and the love that is at the heart of the universe, birth in my life this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. If you raised your hand this morning, it's the beginning of the great eternal dance of joy. Come and like, tell someone you came with, I raised my hand. We're gonna have our prayer team, if the prayer team are available, I'd love the prayer team to come up now. We're gonna, we're gonna worship, and we're gonna worship with joy. Because do you know what something is about that great dance of joy? It's not quiet. There are quiet moments, but there's also a great celebration. And so we're going to celebrate 
and participate in the great dance of joy this morning. The joy that is continually going on between Father, Son, and Spirit. So let's end with joy and worshiping the God who came for you and me. Let's worship. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.